Our scripture lesson today is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So Dan is preaching through the Psalms this summer. A few weeks ago, someone preached on Psalm 1. Uh, this week, we'll have Psalm 2. And Psalm, Psalms 1 and 2 together form an introduction to the book of Psalms. And I'll say a little bit more about the structure and so forth in just a few minutes. But uh, just let me just say this. Both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 speak about different things. Psalm 1 speaks about the righteous man and his love for God's word. Psalm 2 speaks about uh, the Lord's anointed and God's control. And both of these give us very broad themes that help us to order our lives. Now, the problem we have as we read these two Psalms, Psalm 1 and then Psalm 2, is that we have a tendency to say, well, everything's going to be great and fine. And the reality is that's not the case. And that's why so many of the Psalms deal with various problems and issues and difficulties that the psalmist and people have. But the prevailing theme is still the righteous person finds his foundation and his comfort in God's word. And the Lord's anointed, the ultimate anointed one, Jesus Christ, is the one who will rule over this age and the age to come. Let me read Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as, of, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. This psalm tells us that God is in control and that all earthly rulers are to bow to him and acknowledge him. But if you're like me, you find that as you look at our country, or even the world, uh, things are in kind of a sorry state. The economy has allegedly come back, but I don't know that a lot of us would agree that that's completely true. We have wars, terrorist acts taking place all over the world, even things happening in our own country. We find that those in Washington and their wisdom are now drawing down our military. So our active duty army is going to be 420,000 people. 
And that is not a very large army. We have a national debt that's well over $18 trillion. And that concerns me. That means that the average debt that you have as part of our national debt is a little over $50,000. You, your wife, two kids, $200,000 you are in the for. A day of reckoning will come at some point. What's going to happen? Maybe the government just will print money and give it away to pay the debt, and then things go from bad to worse. You know, so you kind of look at all of this and you say, man, what in the world is going on? And you look at our culture, and I don't know what bothered me more about recent news about Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner. Things that he has said or she has said or the publicity that this has gotten. You say something's, something's not right. Something's just not quite right. And Psalm 2 is here to kind of tell us, no, things are not right. But don't panic. Don't despair. Just remember that God is in control. Now this psalm is divided into four very distinct sections. The outline is probably more obvious in this psalm than in any, any of the other psalms. There are four sections, three verses each. The psalm is not uh, identified uh, with a writer, although in uh, Acts chapter 4, David is said to be the writer of this psalm. And Dan mentioned last week that not all the psalms of David are thought to be written by David, but that sometimes uh, scholars think that means they're written in the style of David. But since there's no author given here, and because this psalm is actually different than some of the other psalms of David, for Luke and Acts to say that this is composed by David is something we need to take very seriously. Hebrew poetry does not rhyme. Usually there is a main thought and then a counter thought which reinforces the first thought. And then sometimes there'll be a third line in a verse which will kind of give a summary or some statement about the main idea reflecting the first two, two lines. And you have that here, but you also have in the Hebrew something which you don't see in English. And that is Hebrew words which end with the same sound. It's probably the closest you can come to rhyming in Hebrew that you can get. Now, we rhyme in English all the time. You know, white, light, bright, might, sight, um, whatever. But that didn't happen in Hebrew. It, didn't, it, was, it was a different language, and you don't have that rhyming. But you do have something similar in Psalm 2. So it's kind of a unique psalm. It's a messianic psalm. That is, it speaks about the Messiah. It's a, um, what's called a typically messianic psalm. That is, the psalm is about, in this case, about an earthly king, a king of Israel, or maybe Judah, and that he is a type of the Messiah that's going to come later. Jewish scholars, before the time of Christ, saw this as a messianic psalm. 
And one of the problems Christ had when he came, as people were familiar with this psalm, said, okay, this guy's going to come and he's going to kick some serious behind while he's here. But he didn't do that. And so then they say, well, now, are you, are you really the Messiah? And what they seem to not have recognized, which we do today, is that whenever there are prophetic utterances about the Messiah, oftentimes the prophet will speak with a more cosmic perspective as he looks down the corridors of time and he sees the actions of Christ or of the Messiah and doesn't divide them up into first coming, second coming. It's just this is what the Messiah is going to do. On this side of Christ's first coming, we realize that he didn't do everything he's going to do. So we talk about a return of Christ and the completion of his work. And so some of the things which are spoken of here, which are also spoken of in the book of Revelation, will take place at yet a future, a future time. And so there were those who doubted that Christ was, or Jesus was the Messiah because he didn't fit this model of the anointed son where he comes in with that rod of iron and just uh, wreaks havoc on Israel's enemies. Now, let's take a quick look at, and that's always a euphemism of sorts when you say quick, but let's take a look at the four sections, and then I want to spend hopefully the better part of the remainder of the time uh, in and talking about some application. I can't see that clock, so I'm going to put my watch on the podium. And like the old joke says, what does it mean when the pastor or preacher puts his watch on the lectern? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> right. But I see that it's just uh, about 13 till, so I'm keeping that in mind. All right, four sections. The first section, verses 1 through 3, deal with the opposition of the Lord's anointed. And the first word that we see is the word why. One scholar says you can carry that thought of why to the next series of, of statements or questions. Why do, the, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot against the Lord? It's, it's going to be in vain. Why do the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth take counsel against the Lord and against his own Why do they do that? Don't they realize how futile that is? But they still do it. The kings of the earth are spoken of as those who are, are going to mount a concerted attack against the Lord's king and the Lord's people. The opposition of the Lord's anointed. Section two, the calm assurance that the Lord gives. Starting with verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord is so unconcerned with those who are opposed to him, he doesn't even rise up off of his throne to deal with them. He sits there. He's going to deal with them while he's seated. Now, I don't know if you 
I'm going to date myself and probably bring up things you can think about. But when I was in high school still, in the mid-60s, there was still paddling in school, even in high school. Now, the only ones who usually paddled in high school were the coaches. And those were tough birds. They'd been through World War II and the Korean War, and they didn't take guff from anybody. And some kid gets out of line and mouths off to him into his office, and out comes a paddle. And there was one coach who would sit down to paddle. He would always leave his door open, so if you're in the locker room, some kid's doing something, call, hey, get in here, bend over. And he's seated while he does this. He's exercising his authority and his power, and he doesn't even stand up to do it. You say, wow. <laughs> you didn't have to have much of that, so you said, I'm not going to go in his office. I will behave myself. Well, it's sort of like that. The Lord's saying, you know, I, come on, you guys are, you're like little gnats buzzing around. You're just, you think you're so big and so strong and so tough and so mean, but you are nothing. As you know, uh, just recently we had another grandchild. We were over in Iowa to help uh, our oldest daughter. And the, uh, before the baby was born, their oldest was about three, three and a half. Zeke, his name is. And Zeke is, uh, was the ninth child, so he uh, learned how to take care of himself. Uh, not that he was neglected or anything like that, but he, he realized that if he said something and gave some authority to it, uh, others would feel a certain obligation to obey. So a lot of it was, my mother said I could dot, dot, dot. So when we visited our daughter in the hospital, she said, okay, you know, get back over to the house. Uh, Zeke can play for 30 minutes on the PlayStation. That's his limit, 30 minutes. If he does it now, he can't do it later in the day. So we get back, and Zeke, I'm going to go play downstairs on the computer. So you can go down, but you can only play for 30 minutes. My mother said I could play all I wanted to. No, she did not. <laughs> and our daughter says... And, and she was having some difficulties, so she was trying to get a lot of rest. And uh, one night he came in, in, the middle of the night, and he wanted to climb into bed with uh, my daughter and her husband. And they said, Zeke, you can't do this. I've got to rest. Go back to your room. And he stood up and said, my doctor said I can sleep in your bed if I want to. Now, her husband's about six, six. What do you think they did? Did they get angry? Did they just, ah, you know, they laughed. <laughs> they laughed at him because it was so absurd. And the psalmist, telling, the psalmist is telling us, this is basically how God is. The people who plot against him are so absurd that he just laughs at them. He'll deal with them in his time. The third section, verses 7 through 9, we have this statement, uh, I will tell the decree, the Lord said of me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now we believe that this was spoken of one of the kings of Israel, maybe Judah, may well have been David, because of some we read in 2 Samuel 7. 
that, that the Lord put his affection upon David and said, you are my son. At the time of his coronation or the king's coronation, there was a declaration that you have the status of my son. Hebrews 1 uses this passage in this verse to tell us that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the one being spoken of in the ultimate sense that he is the one who is very God, higher than the angels. He is the one that the angels worship. I don't know that David or Solomon or any of the kings of Israel ever really ruled with an iron rod. But the king will. Now, ruling with an iron rod is something we're not really familiar with in a practical sense. I don't have an iron rod. Iron was the strongest thing they had during that time. This is a steel rod. This is my crowbar. This is, this is my iron rod. I've never used it on anybody, but I've <laughs> thought about it, but never have used it on anybody. This is a clay pot. Kings would sometimes call their subjects in, usually the princes or those who were rulers over various provinces, and they would place a clay pot in front of them. This is a good place as any. And then they would take a rod of iron and they would break it. And the invocation was, just as this iron rod broke that clay pot, you cross me, you show disloyalty, same thing's going to happen to you. Now, you don't know how much I want to break this clay pot. <laughs> but I'm afraid if I did, not only would the clay pot, pot get broken, but the glass and the ceramic, uh, whatever it is, underneath here can get broken, probably even the table. So for the sake of uh, propriety, I'll not do it. But you can imagine some ruler doing that. Don't mess with me. In the book of Hebrews, I'm sorry, in the book of Revelation, we're told that Christ will rule with a rod of iron. There is still a time coming when he will subdue his enemies and those who mount rebellions against him. And then the last section, the last three verses. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. One of the uh, commentaries I was reading says, there's an implication in this statement that people in high position or high office sometimes have a difficult time being instructed. They think they know everything. What are you telling me something? I'm not going to listen to you. But the kings of the earth are warned to command, serve the Lord 
and rejoice with trembling. And then there is that uh, statement, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. During this time in ancient history, the way someone would show allegiance and submission, allegiance and submission to a king, it could be done by a number of ways. In Oriental culture, they would prostrate themselves and kiss the hem of the king's robe or the ruler's robe, or they might kiss the king's ring or kiss the king's hand. But they would do that in order to show submission. And I just—I was wondering when I was reading about this, you know, in, in medieval times, a knight would, uh, you know, kiss the hand of a of a lady. I, I wondered if that was—if part of that was to show, you know, lady, I'm your willing servant or something like that. I don't know. I couldn't find an answer to that. Now we don't do that in our culture, and in some European countries, they still do that. Now we're Americans. If we're going to kiss somebody's hand, we're going to kiss their hand, right? But that's not the way they would do it. They would just. It's almost like an ear kiss. You can just sort of like that. Just to show you're nice and all this kind of stuff. Uh, this wasn't to show you were nice in that sense. This was to show you're my leader, you're my ruler, and I am in subjection to you. All right, now. This psalm tells us that there are enemies of the Lord and of his rulers and of his people. Is that true today? Yes. We know over in the Middle East, ISIS, ISIL, IS, whatever term they want to use, have killed any number of Christians simply because they are Christians and refuse to acknowledge Islam. Boko Haram in uh, Africa has, has kidnapped people, kill people just because they're Christians. We know here in certain parts of our country, the state has taken positions which we, I would say, are in opposition to Christian principles and biblical values. And you have non-Christians running around trying to do things to discredit Christians and, and uh, if they could eradicate culture of any sign of Christianity. So yeah, we have. We have those who are in opposition to the church. I'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit. But uh, we do. We still have that today. But we still have the same God that the psalmist is speaking of, the one who sits in heaven and, and laughs at those who plot against him. We learned that the Lord is in control at all times. And this is where when we have things happen to us, we question whether that is true. If God is really in control, why did whatever happen? And we can't always say, well, it happened for this reason, but we have that overarching principle that God is in control. How much in control is he? I have a friend who worked very hard to get his PhD. And after he did that, he got a job teaching 
in a small Baptist college teaching history. And he, he was a, a good Christian, very active in his church. And a Christian school in Florida approached him about leaving his position with the college and coming down to Florida and becoming headmaster of their Christian school. And before teaching in college, he had taught in a preparatory school and there was a great appeal to him to do that. But he had a secure job, a, a good job, prestigious job in some ways, although it was a small college. And could he leave that and go down to Florida to take a job in this Christian school? And while he's pondering all of this and trying to make a decision, one day the, the school president called all the faculty and staff people together and he said, I have a, a sad announcement to make to you that the board of trustees have decided that there's really no need for this college and so they are going to close the college. And we'll help those of you get jobs if you would like us to and so forth. But if this is the last school year you're going to have here. The school is closing. Now for my friend, all right, you know, what, you know, even he could say, okay, this is the Lord's will. All right, so he immediately contacted the school in Florida and said, hey, uh, sign me up. I'm on board. You know, come down, visit, all this kind of stuff. I'll be there next school year. And he was set. And no sooner had all the ink dried on the papers of his accepting that position that all the faculty staff were called back together and said, upon reconsideration, the board decided that this school is valuable and we're going to keep it open. <laughs> if any of you have other positions, we understand. We don't hold you. We can't fault you for that. And he moved to Florida. <laughs> so does our God have the ability to close the school down and reopen it just to move one single person? And I say, yes, he does. If you read just this psalm and didn't have the rest of scripture, you might have a skewed view of how the Lord works. But, but we know as we read other parts of the Bible that, that although the Lord is in control, things are going to get worse before they get better. At least that's my position. Uh, there are those who who think the world is going to get better, and I, I wish it were true. And if I'm wrong, I'll be glad to admit that I was wrong on that. But I do believe that things are going to get worse before they get better. And sometimes we don't realize that we are caught up in a spiritual warfare and spiritual battle, and that the things we experience, although they may not make rhyme or reason to us about why they happen, they're part of a bigger plan and a bigger battle that's raging around us, most of which we don't see. The book of Job talks about that. We sometimes get this wrong about Job, the book of Job. Satan didn't come to God and say, hey, you know, look at Job, you've done all this for him. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, yeah, you give him everything, of course he's going to love you. Take that away from him and he'll hate you. And so over a couple of events, Job lost everything, lost his wealth, lost his family, lost his health, his house. Everything was gone. And he's sitting in ashes and he has these three friends that are telling him how bad he is and that's why he's suffering. And what's the end of Job about? 
The Lord doesn't come to Job and say, Job, thank goodness you were faithful all this time. What it ends with saying, Job, I am God, and you have to be faithful to me. Trust in me. You were. Continue. In the Old Testament, some of the prophets spoke about the day of the Lord. Like Amos. Amos 5 speaks about this. They were waiting for the day of the Lord when, when uh, God's people would be vindicated and everything would be made right. And the prophet said, don't necessarily wish for the day of the Lord because it's going to be a day of great darkness and judgment and retribution. You know, love justice. Let righteousness roll down like water. Don't live in fear and worry. A funny thing has happened over the last several weeks. Uh, first, we were at my mother's house for a couple of weeks. And we'd been there the previous time we had her cable service disconnected and, and so forth. So that we watched some things on Netflix with our computer. But we couldn't get the news. Um, And then we were at my daughter's house for a week, and um, we didn't hear any news there. And there's something happened to me, at least, because I'm like a news junkie. I like to know what's going on every minute or every second. But when you don't hear all the bad stuff, you kind of forget about it. It's not that it's not happening, but you just don't hear about it. And I think that, um, I don't this may not be the best thing to say, but I think there's a sense in which you have to turn a deaf ear to the news. Because, you know, bad things are what always sell, I guess, or get your attention. But just remember that we are to live in calm assurance that God is in control. If you turn over a, a few Psalms to Psalm 11 which is a psalm I like. And it was a psalm I gave Dan an option. I could preach on this if he wanted me to, but he said no psalm too. But verse 3, Psalm 11 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now just before this, it says, How can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? You know, sometimes you... You know, you get this survivalist mentality. I'm going to stock up on, you know, my shotgun shells and 223 ammunition and uh, maybe even get another weapon or whatever. And you know, they're, they're not taking me. You know, I'm going to, I'll fight to the death and, you know, and, and we stockpile stuff. And, you know, I've got clothes that probably last me for several years. And, and um, I don't have food that lasts for several years. But uh, my stock and trade is peanut butter. We can live on peanut butter a long time. So I always like to have several jars on the shelf. We go down to the basement, we hunker down, we have spoons, we're, we're in business. We'll survive, we will survive. <clears throat> but what is this? What is, well, Psalm 11, I, as long as I'm in that, let's take a look at that a second. Verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy, holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. 
And then the last phrase, the last verse, the upright shall behold his face. So what should we do? We need to, to take a deep breath. Just remember, we are to be calm before God. For some reason, we think we always have to be in a state of frenzy before God. What did God say to Moses when the Israelites uh, were at the Red Sea and the Egyptians are approaching and, and uh, Moses is getting kind of agitated and God said, just stand still, be quiet and see the salvation of the Lord. And we need to take a deep breath, calm down, say, Lord, you were in control. I don't know why certain events take place, but you are the one who is the sovereign, and there's a reason why these things happen. We are not to live in fear and worry. And when we see the opposition of the Lord, of, to the Lord, we need simply to pray. 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 And some of you know, I was a church planner in a few places. For a while, I was in New Orleans. There were about 10 years. And after we got our church established, we bought property. And then we were going to build a building. And things were going pretty well until we submitted plans to the city. When well, the city of New Orleans, this was a suburb. But they had a planning uh, department and so forth. And I don't know how many times I went down to City Hall, plans in hand, ordinances in hand, saying, this is what the ordinance says, our plans meet this requirement. To be told, no, that's not good enough. That's not what it means. You're going to have to do more than that. One of the things was, and I forget the exact numbers, but I think for parking for churches, you had to have one parking space. I think it was for every five seats in your main auditorium. That seemed pretty plain to me. Your main auditorium is a place where you can have your worship service. If you had uh, 150 seats, five into that is what, 30, 30 parking spaces. You could argue that wasn't enough, but that's what the code required. But the gentleman I was dealing with said, no, 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 that's not what it means. It means you have to have a parking space for every five seats that you can get in your building. So you have all your Sunday school classrooms. Whatever the dimensions are, you could get so many chairs set up in there. So we had to have about, um, actually about 30 more than what they were saying. We didn't have land to do that. And we went round and round on this. The architect talked to him. I talked to him. And one day I went into the office. And when I went in, I noticed everybody was just sitting there and they stared at me. I said, this is kind of strange. But I walked over the counter and asked to see Mr. So-and-so, and, -so, and um, finally somebody came up to the counter and said, didn't you hear? I said, hear what? Mr. So-and-so died. I said, what? He had a heart attack and just dropped dead. And he wasn't an elderly man. He was middle-aged. I said, I had not heard that. Um, I'm sorry to hear that, but you know, who's in charge now? Well, the replacement will be here next week. If you can come back next week, somebody can help you then. It's Okay. Came back next week, walking, everybody's staring at me, watching me walk up to the counter. Asked to speak, the person I needed to. They ushered me into his office. 
I said, this, the code, city ordinance says this. Our plans show this. I think we meet the code. He said, okay. And showed me the door. And I left. And as I was leaving, it dawned on me. The reason everybody was looking at me was because they knew I was a representative of the church. The church of Jesus Christ. And this other guy had been in strong opposition to what we were trying to do. And New Orleans being what it was, a little bit of superstitious stuff, I think the word got out, don't, hey, don't mess with this guy, you know. <laughs> Whatever he wants, just give it to him. And all we wanted was what the code required. Now, did I have anything to do with that man's death? No. Not in a million years would I ever even thought of something like that happening. Did the Lord have anything to do with that man's death? Ultimately, I guess I would say yes. He had a heart attack. He had you know, bad arteries and all that kind of stuff, but it wasn't my doing. But it was a pretty strong object lesson for those in that office, I thought. You know, don't be so antagonistic toward the church, toward the Lord's people. Let, let the code apply to them as to anybody else. Now, one of the things I kind of struggle with when I was preparing this sermon is you always like to bring in the work of Christ and salvation. Um, There's not a mention of the cross in the passage. We're on Psalm 22. That'd be an easy transition. But we're talking about the work of Christ in a broad sense. His incarnation, his perfect life, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, all of those are part of God's plan for his anointed. And we have salvation because of what he did. And we look forward to that time when the Lord is going to return and will continue his work. And again, I'm just going to say what I said before and then I'm going to quit. But keep in mind that as you struggle with things in this life, part of that struggle is because you are also caught up in a spiritual battle. Most of the time you're not aware of it, I don't think, but it's there. And one of the worst times for that battle is Sunday morning. Now, I was a pastor for a little over 40 years. And, well, I guess I'm still a pastor in some senses, but uh, if my wife and I were ever going to have an argument, when was it going to be? Sunday morning, usually. If the kids were going to have a meltdown, when was it going to be? Sunday morning. Somebody couldn't find their shoes or their dress or their favorite pants. When was it going to be? Sunday morning. And knowing all of that, this morning early, I saw I had a a message on my phone 
about 7 a.m. I looked at my phone and I'm trying to sell my mother's house down in Alabama. And the real estate agent had sent me a, an early morning, it was actually an email. They said, there's an offer on your mother's house. And it was actually, they, they offered the full, what we were asking, full price. And there are certain conditions and everything, but it looked very good. What do you think about I was thinking about now for the next number of, uh, of minutes after that. Send something to my sister saying, hey, there's an offer on the house. I'll call you after lunch and we'll go over the details and uh, so forth. On the way here, she sent me a text back. What did they offer? <laughs> and then my wife and I were talking about, I don't know how this works. I think I had prayed very earnestly for the house to sell and to sell quickly. It appears, at least at this point, that it has. But how is it that Satan, I think Satan, can take something like that and so use it to distract us? The time I should have been thinking about God and his word and his worship, and I'm thinking about this house and how much my mother's going to get. But it's not like just today. For us, for me, it's almost every Sunday I've been alive, it seems. Maybe it's like that with you. Maybe it's other times. But what we need to remember in all of these times is that God is the one who is sovereign, and we are to trust and love and worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the assurance that he gives to us of your ultimate victory. May it also give us comfort as we experience the various difficulties of life, knowing that you are still in control, even if we're not able to see how you're in control in particular situations. Help us, Father, to always look to you and rely upon the truth of your word for direction, for guidance, and for comfort. In Christ's name, amen.